From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with comedian Michael Griffin about his new special, 27 Club. Fear can permeate a lot of approaches towards problem solving, but I've kind of been having the paradigm shift of, do we have to approach it as work? I understand it takes work, it takes energy, but I still would contend that it took work for John Coltrane to make giant steps. You know, I would contend that it took work for Michael Jackson to learn how to moonwalk. You know, there are many things that require work that are joyful, and using that joy as fuel for problem solving is what I think that we need personally. We're talking about learning to laugh while discussing the hard topics, the efficacy of comedy in a polarized world, and comedy culture in Omaha. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. I feel like a broken record sometimes as I do this show, and I complain about problems of attention. How do you get people to care about issues and to inform themselves? Or how do you get them to want to when they can instead find limitless entertainment all around them that's accessible at all times from their pockets? My guest today is Michael Griffin, who merges the hard questions with entertainment through his comedy. His new special, 27 Club, was filmed at Culture House and is available now on YouTube. And by the way, today is Michael's birthday. Here is our conversation. The description in it for your special, it asks, why can't we laugh and learn while discussing hard topics, which I talk about all the time on the show. People probably are like, can he not do an episode on that? But <laughs> sorry, sorry to those people. Uh, that's where we're going. Because I'm always struggling with the fact that I don't think people really want to talk about hard topics ever. You almost always have to fool them into it or it's like a life and death situation where they have to confront it. Totally. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, I'm a self-identified child of social justice culture and it's it's tricky uh, growing up in these times, literally uh, transitioning into adulthood. But also understanding, you know, where to place morality and more importantly, what to do about it. And so for me, I just think that fear in general can permeate a lot of approaches towards problem solving. You know what I'm saying? Because we're talking about white supremacy. We're talking about so many hard things. So it makes rational sense to be fearful. But I've kind of been having the paradigm shift of, you know, one do we have to approach it as work? Right. I understand it takes work. It takes energy. But, you know, I still would contend that it took work for John Coltrane to make giant steps. You know, I would contend that it took work for Michael Jackson to learn how to moonwalk. You know, there are many things that require work that are joyful, you know, and that joy and using that joy as fuel for problem solving is what I think that that we need personally, you know, because... We want to not talk about hard topics, but we want to resolve the hard topics. I think we want somebody to resolve the hard topics. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Well, it's funny to talk about fear, the use of fear in the context of you're here to talk about a comedy special. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough line to walk. I mean, how, how did you start to put together that those two could work together? Yeah. Well, so I used to work at an AIDS clinic uh, about five years ago. And it was just me alone as a young black guy, 21, 22 at the time, with a lot of folks that were in drug rehab. And a lot of these folks were like 50 to 60. 
and white from small town Nebraska. And that is so not me in a lot of ways. And so there is a lot of fear in the air. But at the same time, there was a common understanding that we all were a part of a system that was failing us. And we had a common goal. And so I kind of realized, you know, I could talk about white supremacy's role in creating, in creating racist laws like the 1 to 100 rule, which is one gram of crack cocaine had an equal penalty as 100 grams of cocaine with the war on drugs, which clearly, in my opinion, you know, had some racial bias. And so I was thinking, how can we talk about this? Because they got to learn it. And I'm not going to forsake my identities nor theirs, but also how can we have fun? And so that's when I started realizing, like, there was literally a time where I was like, my name's Michael. I work with Nebraska AIDS Project. I'm going to do the worm. And then we're going to talk about racism. <laughs> and so I was just mixing in those different colors and just not only making it palatable and understandable, but, but forging a bridge that could create a relationship with our experiences. So in that sense, it's sort of the comedy gets them to like you, and then you can sort of drop some of the bitter pills in there. As opposed to like, it's not like the, the issues themselves when you're talking about them in that situation. The issue isn't funny, right? Like you can't make the, the, the actual problem that funny, uh, but you can be funny. I don't know. So I guess that's the combination. It's not like I'm going to talk about racism and it's going to be a lot of funny stuff about racism so much as you're going to be very funny and then get them to trust you enough to maybe listen. I think it's a mix of the above, you know, like I do think. This is just me talking. <laughs> there are some things that can be kind of offensive, but also funny. Sure, like There sure. are things that could be racist, but kind of funny. Like, I'm working on making this funny. I'm not quite there yet as a comedic artist. Um, if anyone is a pro and listening, you can help me out. But, like, for me personally, I don't think it's funny, but I think it's kind of funny that it was a big deal that the British family was racist to Meghan Markle. You know? <laughs> like, again, not funny, <laughs> Racism sucks, but I mean, yeah, the <laughs> the British kingdom that they're racist, you know. And so for me, that's an example of not really delegitimizing the severity of racism, but kind of delegitimizing the surprise or the X, Y, and Z. So for me, it's it's about making scary things human. And, you know, if if I can have the same understanding and feeling that I listen to music that I hate, like the Beatles, I've been on a one man fight against the Beatles. I, I noticed you had a little Beatles jab in your in yeah. special. I just want to crush them <laughs> on my feet, you know, but we ain't got enough time for that. But if I can train myself to have the same reaction when I hear people saying ignorant things that I do when I hear music I dislike, I can listen, I can learn and I can have more self-awareness. So the Beatles, they just, uh, when, when did you discover your hatred of the Beatles? How much time you got, man? Uh, <laughs> when I saw Ringo Starr's face and then heard his drumming. Uh, well, but look, you, you don't have to like Ringo to be a Beatles fan. You don't. I think a lot of them don't like Ringo that much. I didn't say it was rational hatred, number one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Kind of not really, but yeah. So... <laughs> Comedy as a method for something that's actually useful in society. I mean, I guess even that's that's a loaded way of saying it because it's useful to laugh, to yeah. be happy, to you know just watch something and have a good time. Sometimes that's what you need. I mean, sometimes yeah. you need to sort of deconnect at times. Other times you maybe should be connecting. 
So what, what, what was comedy like for you? When did you discover love for it? I was five, and I listened to Dave Chappelle on my sister's something. <laughs> I don't know what it was or how I came across it. Maybe we were watching HBO or something. Um, but it's been a pretty important part of my life. And, uh, yeah, my mom is hilarious. I think she should be a stand-up comedian. But it really, like, understanding its its way to establish equity was more five, six years ago with the understanding that this is what I want to do. Uh, just because, you know, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. I've been working on thinking about them as applications as opposed to ideologies to strive for. You know, like, how can you have an, an equitable application of transferring information mm-hmm. where everyone is mass participating? And so for me, I think art in general has a long story tradition of sharing accurate information that can really help people and reduce harm. But uh, I started really understanding my interpersonal connection to that when I started doing community work about five, six, seven years ago. So did you want to be a comedian like when you were a kid? No, I didn't want to be a comedian until I went to grad school, honestly. Wow. I've never heard that one. (laughs) Yeah, I originally went, uh, I studied health policy at Emory, and I planned to go into politics immediately after, you know, be a cool hotshot, whatever, whatever, equity, yay. But I just realized that there needed to be a different mechanism for how we educate policy. You know, uh, conventional approaches towards policy education, you're either in an academic or governmental institution. And neither of those approaches really are equitable for people that need that information the most. So it kind of made me think like, okay, everyone is involved in art. Everyone thinks and feels from art. And also, you know, there's one thing to have political observation, but to have curriculum and how I can make a career at that and reduce harm. Yeah. So that was really my approach. So I guess three years ago. Wow. (laughs) Like to to do what in politics? What was the original vision? Yeah, to have mass participation. As a candidate? Oh, the original goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah to try and get my AOC on, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, so like were there, were there political idols where you're sort of like looking at that person you think, oh, maybe I could do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that most political figures are polarized, but I don't think you can deny the role culturally that the squad, that AOC, like that sure. they had with young people especially mm-hmm. young colored people or women so yeah they heavily influenced me so when did when did that happen for you because that, that that wasn't it's not like that uh, you weren't like a kid watching aoc you know? <laughs> for sure for sure i think uh when did she get elected again was it post cheeto man right like i don't know the exact 20, year 20? but i mean roughly around then right so yeah relatively recently yeah then. yeah i think just really understanding autonomy within politics mm-hmm. you know that I could be my fully realized self. And it's not about expectations or da-da-da-da-da. It's about relationships I have with constituents. Mm-hmm. And I think that directly aligns with the commute practice. So that would that have looked like running for office in Nebraska? No, I was like in Atlanta. Okay. Got the whole like, I'm too good for Omaha. I'm better. So, I think you run very different races probably <laughs> in Georgia than you do in Nebraska. As a black man, you use different voices. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's just a relic of code switching from a young age. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of trauma behind it, but there's a lot of skills from it too. Um, yeah, so I originally wanted to go into politics, um, but I just think that I think that approaching politics as a career is kind of a slippery slope. As far as when you're in office, you're worried about getting reelected. You worry about X, Y, and Z, and at some level, you probably forsake yourself if that is the basis of your career. Worried about your next yacht payment. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that saying. You go to do good, stay to do well. Right. In a lot of cases. Not that that's everybody, but we certainly have a lot of examples of it. Absolutely. Well, I find it's difficult, especially when you get a, a look inside the political arena, to still have some of that idealism that draws people to politics in the first place. So, Was that ever a struggle for you? Definitely, um, especially because the rules of the game are different in different arenas. And fundamentally, in my opinion, to reduce harm is to figure out how to fix problems. And community has the problems. And so I even felt this in grad school. You know, when you're consolidated to an institution and the only people you talk to are people that have law degrees or people with PhDs that only talk to people that have PhDs and law degrees – I think that can, you know, I feel like a lot of conversations of groupthink and echo chambers are in reference to activists. But I think, you know, with academic linguistics, if that's all you're saturated in, there will be a point, in my opinion, where you won't have autonomy and when you have to play by the rules of respectability. And so I think just the nature of being there can really cause you to forsake the idealism of why you were there in the first place. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Griffin about his new comedy special, 27 Club, which is available now on YouTube. What's on your mind this week? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Did you have that idealism when you were a kid here? Because you, you grew up here, right? In Omaha? Yeah, I was born in KC, but okay. I've oh. been here since I was five. So, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've always seen myself as someone who wanted to help, um, but... For me, the biggest thing has been figuring out the the most enjoyable and efficient way to achieve that. So, what were why did you want to help people? What's the root of that? When you were, <laughs> were there problems that were stressing you yeah, out? Is that the root of it? Man, uh, I'd say my mom. Like my mom was really my my moral guiding point. You know, like she's my north star to use an analogy. Um, and she's a pediatrician at a public health clinic, and I've just seen up close what it means to follow through on ideals. You know, like I remember when I was seven, when I was six, I would go to her office and she bought clothes for her patients. You know, this is long before integrated care or equity was seen as a thing. And so I think just having proximity to that from a young age and being raised by my grandmother. So that's all to say dope black woman. <laughs> yeah. So th- that sounds like it was also a window into some societal ills. Like beyond just the specific person who maybe needs help, that there are problems that could be solved on a bigger level. Right. That's where you started to get interested in some of the the hard topics, as you put it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, not to get too personal, but we already talked about my childhood. So, you know, I just I've seen abuse in life and like in family or in, in community. And I just realized that, you know, things don't disappear when you don't talk about them. You know, in fact, I think they get worse, you know, like the same instance that uh, they didn't allow ankles or kissing in movies. That was the same time before sexual assault was seen as a thing. 
amongst mainstream powers, you know? So I really think that part of the reason why I'm drawn to comedy and just drawn in general is just, just having truth. And I think especially with folks in my age and my own personal experience, there is a time where hearing an idea that I disagreed with, like, felt like I, it felt like I couldn't take it. It felt like it was an attack. And, and that's just not in alignment with democracy. You know, like, I am a black dude, intersectional feminist. But at the same time, the First Amendment is the First Amendment. And in my opinion, if you don't allow people to speak their truth, number one, I don't know how democracy will work. And number two, it will hurt oppressed peoples the most if there is high levels of censorship, Yeah, in my opinion. Well, and it, I think we always talk, and I, I get drawn into it too, we talk about democracy as this idealistic, romantic thing where people fundamentally do want everyone's voices to be heard. They fundamentally do want all different types of people to be represented. And I think there's probably enough evidence to at least doubt that that's the case, that everybody is wanting to open the door wider as opposed to closing it a little bit more, right? So, I mean, navigating even that, I know for me it's sort of difficult because I, I love to – I like to think that doing this show sometimes, shining a light on something, really makes a difference and that, it, you know, it inspires people to maybe act or think about something differently. But then other times you're sort of like, well, you just look at election results and it's like, I don't know if people <laughs> want to think differently. I think sometimes people uh, – you either are somebody who is really devoted to broadening people's horizons and your own horizons or you're sort of just comfortable. And fighting comfort is hard because people like to be comfortable, right? And that's part of your mission too is to like make the comfort level expand to more topics and issues and problems, right? Yeah. And I think that that's where art comes in for me. You know, I think what makes art unique is that you allow people to think and feel, not one or the other. And I think with other avenues of ascribing morality, you know, whether it's proving you're a good person by calling someone out, proving that you're X, Y, and Z by doing a vote, you know, it's an external thing where you prove an extension. Like, I'm a good person because of this. But it's what do you, what do you think and feel? Like, how do you let that guide if you're good or bad, quote unquote? And I think that when I think of democracy, I think just mass participation, you know, like, like that is something I truly, truly reflect on a lot. Um, like, for instance, I'm a big fan of the civil rights movement, you know, big fan. And I think what's extremely unique about it that I'd like to replicate is that you had a, a movement that had mass participation over 90 percent of one demographic worked to have legislative change. You know, we're not talking about something going through the court and then having a, a landmark court decision, like with Roe versus Wade, we're talking about legislative change that had to coordinate with senators, members in Congress. And this is from a social movement. And how do they do this? They did this by understanding existing systems, the church, community practices, where they could leverage the information such as nonviolence principles. That was information that had to be disseminated in a standard model. It wasn't just... We love God. We're black kumbaya. We won't have violence. No, <laughs> it was disseminated and it was an act of political protest because they understood addressing power structures. You know, they had t instances where they would mix civil rights principles with existing religious 
ideas and psalms that people have been talking about from the time they were five or six, you know? And so I really look at that as a framework to adjust what democracy means with having mass participation in the actual process. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. From the top down. And when I think about equity, when I think about mass participation, everyone laughs. Everyone. Regardless of where you're from, regardless of what you believe in, something can be said to you that will make you laugh. Number two, I really have started to understand the difference between persuading someone to agree with me and persuading someone to act in their best interest, you know, mm -hmm. because you can talk to a Trumper and be like, hey, racism is actually the reason you're poor. Or you can talk to a homophobic, transphobic black person and say, hey, you know, there are black people that are trans and LGBTQ. And so if you actually care, this this helps you, you know. And so when I think about the mixtures of mass participation and also how folks have relationships with art, but most importantly, persuading people to act in their best interests. Because that's what the right does, you know, in my opinion. As far as, you know, teaching sexism, homophobia, da-da-da-da-da, it's because they're working with constituents that are taught to believe that their whiteness will protect them from anything. So when you discovered this about persuasion and the different ways of trying to talk to people that you don't agree with, how did how did you come to that? I mean, because that's probably a struggle and it's probably something that's a trial and error sort of totally. journey. Totally. Yeah. So I was definitely a keyboard warrior back in the day. And no shade, by the way. This is my own personal experience. Um, but I realized that there's a difference between reducing harm and also doing it the way that I want to. You know, mm -hmm. and what's my goal? Is my goal to reaffirm my value and prove something or is it to reduce harm? And so when I understood that it was to reduce harm and especially working in healthcare, that's kind of when I had that paradigm shift of, you know, in, in public health, there are interventions, right? And so fundamentally, an intervention is how can you shift a behavior so people will do healthier things for themselves? And so that's really what led me to think like, oh, education is an apparatus towards an intervention for people to act in their best interests, you know. And so that was kind of my shift when I just realized it wasn't about proving that my values were correct. It was about reducing harm and then just figuring out, I guess, scientific approaches, if you will, to achieve that and how that can be synthesized with art. So who were some of the artists that you saw doing this in a way that you could maybe emulate? Totally. Um, I would say, I'd say Billie Holiday was a big one. Um, you know, Strange Fruit was reduced in 1939. And at the same time, FDR was refusing to consider anti-lynching legislation. Um, I think Marvin Gaye was a really big person. You know, he did What's Going On. In 1971, I believe. And then a year prior to that, uh, Nixon created the EPA. And, and what's going on, he was one of the first prominent artists, especially black artists, to talk about environmental hazards. And so I would argue that he probably reached black audiences a little more effectively than Nixon regarding uh, environmental disparities. Um, and also, I would say most comedians. Most. Okay. <laughs> I'm biased. I'm very biased, obviously. But I do think there is something important to having your experience shared. You know how they say the person is political. And so, again, do I agree with everyone? 
No, but do I recognize the the philosophies behind their approach and that it could be something I can learn from? Absolutely. I'm talking with Michael Griffin about his new comedy special, 27 Club, which was filmed here in Omaha and is available now on YouTube. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. How can you tell that a neighborhood is gentrified? You see a white lady running after 8 p.m. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for. The reason why you subscribed in the first place. To hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford and really whatever you think the show is worth. Which maybe is zero. In which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. I love Obama. I really do. I know that's a hot take with white activists, but I love Obama. You know, he did a lot of cool sh**. He was intersectional as he cared about LGBTQ folks, he cared about prison reform, and he loved drones. I mean, he's an American president. But I read his most recent book. It's called The Promised Land. It talks about his political rise. And it blew my mind, you know? The first time I read The Promised Land, I was blown away that the n- went from running for office for the first time to becoming president in 12 years. The second time I read The Promised Land, I was blown away by the legislative process. How he inherited a failing economy, saved the auto industry, and made the Affordable Care Act, which fundamentally changed how we pay for health care and gave over 20 million people extended lives with insurance. That's crazy. The third time I read The Promised Land, I realized that I have daddy issues. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. My guest today is Michael Griffin, whose new comedy special 27 Club was filmed here in Omaha and is available now on YouTube. Here's the rest of our conversation. I think it's been interesting to see uh, the reevaluation of Jon Stewart as someone who became very popular for trying to draw attention to serious issues during really the Iraq war uh, and then Bush and then a little bit during Obama. But he was somebody who was able to gain a lot of popularity, really, I think, influence a lot of people using humor, being very funny but talking about serious things. And I think why people liked him was because you could see that passion and that anger and the genuine concerns that were sort of spilling through into the comedy. 
And then you jump forward to now. So he's back. He's got a show that's not especially popular. And he's even acknowledged that a lot of what almost everything that he was advocating for did not come to pass. <laughs> and so while it was really popular and I think useful for maybe people's mindsets who were open to that sort of the ideas that he was espousing, it's not clear that there was much of an efficacy to what he did. There's mm. not a legacy. Mm. There's not a political legacy. There's mm. an entertainment legacy. Mm. Right. What do you think of that? Um, shout out John Stewart if you hear this tiny man from Omaha, Nebraska, and you're like, I just need a tiny ma- man from Omaha, Nebraska. I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> so this is something that I think about a lot. Um, I think it's tricky when you are deemed a political comedian as opposed to being a comedian that has politics in it. Like mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to be because it's all about your target demographic. You know, um, I would argue that most people that watch The Daily Show probably agree with everything being said on The Daily Show. Yes. You know, that's fair. And so for me, uh, one thing that I've learned is just that most people are not activists, you know, like in the real world outside of the bubble. That was a big thing that 21 year old Michael had to learn when Cheeto Man was elected. Most people are not activists and there are a lot of people. And so I would say for me, uh, comedians like Jon Stewart. And like Hassan Minaj, like really great, or W. Kamau Bell, like really incredible comics. But I would argue that most of the people that they have clout with or relationships with in their expression are probably liberals, which makes sense. But, you know, there won't be longstanding change unless there is discourse amongst all types of people. You know, and so I would think that would be attributed to why, you know, because at the end of the day, we're trying to have everyone vote in their best interests. And if I'm focusing and if I'm comfortable with talking to people that already agree with what I'm saying, that won't reach the masses. So by that philosophy, I mean, why wasn't your special filmed in, uh, you know, Carney or something? Uh, Safety. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, man. We know ropes sell a lot there. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, that special wasn't filmed in Carney because I have a specific target demographic with my expression. Um, I look to empower community members to act in their best interests that won't hurt me while I do comedy. <laughs> But I mean, part part of what you were just talking about, though, is that the the need to not talk to the people who agree with you, right? Whereas I would imagine that it wasn't like especially controversial in the crowd that was there that night, right? You're you're special. Yeah, yeah, you old people accountable here, at Riverside. I like it. I like it. Got those receipts. Yeah, but I think another thing is safety. Yeah, of a performer. I mean, we're living in a time where people are really messing with comedians. I don't know if you've seen the slappage up here. Uh, Side note, I'm still pro Will Smith as a comedian. That's for another time. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think it's tricky um, because when you're doing comedy, you still have the risk of how people react. Mm -hmm. And I think that what makes comedy beautiful is that the comedian doesn't know how the audience will react and the audience doesn't know what the comedian will say. Um, but that being said, I mean, I've never thought about Carney, but hey, 
<laughs> I'll do it. Well, so what was your process then? I mean, doing an hour of comedy uh, is kind of daunting, right? It's, a, it's just a lot of material that you have to rely on that will work, <laughs> that flows well, right? Yeah. So I mean, when you first started to come up with that, did it come out of uh, like open mic nights and doing, you know, shorter gigs? Totally. So um, I came back when the pandemic happened. Uh, I was worried about my mom. And I realized I'd be living here longer than planned. Um, I was planning to go back to Atlanta. And so then I was like, no, I can't do what I wanted to do. But then I was like, wait a second, just do it in Omaha. Uh, so first, it was just the understanding of dealing with the anxiety of putting myself out there at mm-hmm. that level um, was the biggest thing for me. But as far as acquiring content for it, um, I'm a big nerd. I just love reading about policy and law and like reproductive rights policy and and i just always have a big database and so the first step is thinking you know what do i want to share because if i'm speaking publicly i don't enjoy i take speaking publicly seriously or or going public um just because i want to reduce harm and so i'd like to have a level of intentionality so to use academic jargon there's a pretty big lit review with different texts, um, either from school or just things I'm reading. But I also um, I also just always keep ideas on my notes with my iPhone. And so it's just this fun game of, okay, what ratio of policy jokes, but, but I don't want to sound too preachy, right? So let's make it about me and how I was fat in middle school and had racism, right? But... I still need to use the momentum to talk about a topical thing. Da, 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 da. And so it's kind of like I view kind of have different themes having different colors and just figuring out, you know, how to make a collage with that. Um, but as far as prep goes, <laughs> um, it's mostly me talking in my kitchen every day for an hour. <laughs> to, to anybody? Nope. Okay. Just walking around practicing. Uh, my fellow apartment mates have either realized that I do comedy or they are very afraid of me <laughs> and think I have a terrifying uh, ritual at dusk. <laughs> well, so, so it, it sounds like you designed it then as an hour as mm-hmm. opposed to like it was it, oh, yeah, it didn't had, come from 15 minute bits or anything, no, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. So it, it was intended as an hour. Mm-hmm. Why do it as an hour instead of uh, bring little bite-sized pieces around? Open mic nights and whatever else. Because I'm trying to be Big Willie style. <laughs> because, uh, well, I had done comedy about six times before. Okay. Or seven. I'm pretty novice, I guess. But I really just wanted to challenge myself. Um, and and also just change expectations of what's possible in Omaha, I think. Because uh, yeah. I've wanted to do something like this for a while, and I think a lot of people do. But I think there's this whole like, but it's Omaha. I can't. Yeah. I got to go to New York to be a big shot. So to really reframe, like, how can you have high production DIY, but still quasi-professional level? Yeah. I, I did, so you did open mic nights here. Mm-hmm. How did that go? <sighs> Not great. Uh, I didn't open mic like two weeks before doing the special and no one laughed and I thought about fleeing town, but <laughs> then I read a promised land <laughs> and got some inspiration. Uh, you read the whole thing in two weeks? Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of pages. 
commendable. Sometimes I need to insert a jolt of inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw Hassan Minaj on my birthday, and I was like, I can do that. So, <laughs> in a respectful, humility way, if you're listening at all. My, uh, <laughs> I've done a few open mic nights, and okay. my, my experience with it is the audience is almost exclusively the people on the list who are going to go up. Uh-huh. And so if you're late in the night, <laughs> uh-huh. your audience is dwindling, first of all. Second of all, all they're doing is nervously thinking about, like they're running it in their head or they're looking at their little notebook and maybe they've brought a person or two who's going right. to laugh for them but is probably not paying that much <laughs> yeah. attention. So in my experience, it was not a great way to workshop anything. <laughs> I workshop it with my mom yeah, a lot and she would heckle me a lot. So that really was like, well, I survived that, you know. Yeah, well, just like to actually have people listen, you're told open mic nights are the place to go for that. <laughs> In Omaha, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think I get better from practicing in my kitchen. Well, so you're relying on your barometer a lot more that way, right? Which yeah. Which is a little bit different. Totally. How do you trust yourself to know the pace is right or that's the right mm, joke, the right totally. phrase? Totally. We know whatever. Well, you know, um, I think for me, it's less about having faith in myself and more about having faith in my idea, you know? Um, and for me, the biggest thing is never say a joke that isn't authentically funny to you. Um, and just figuring out how to anticipate an audience's reaction traditionally when I start sets, I try to have like a cannonball so I can see how much water splashes, you know, and that helps gauge the room. Um, but honestly, I don't know. <laughs> it's really wacky. Uh, and sometimes people crack up when I'm not expecting it. And then I have to like take a deep breath and wait for it to end before I start the next thing. Um, but yeah, I really don't know a lot of the times. Did you have stage fright that you had to get over it all? Yes. Absolutely. Have, uh, you, have you gotten over it? <laughs> it's usually the first, the first two and a half minutes. They're like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but then it's like dope, kind of like, kind of like this. First two and a half minutes were rough. Okay, <laughs> I'm lying. No, no, just kidding. Well, yeah. I mean, I, did you do like, uh, did you have experience doing public speaking? Like when you were in high school or anything? Did you do speech or whatever? No, I ha- I just had some jobs where I did speaking. Okay. Like I worked at a rock wall and I was educating there and I worked at an after school program and I got roasted by nine year olds. That is actually how I get confidence to do comedy. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I mean, to, to get nine year olds to listen to you is a real skill. <sighs> How'd yeah. you do it? What were, your, what were your tricks? Well, when they said hurtful things, I would take it in stride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One time, uh, I also learned how old I was because I first heard about 21 Savage from a kid, and they were like, Mister, you look like 21 Savage. And I was like, Oh, cool. And then another student was like, mister, you look like another singer. And I was like, who? And she was like, ugly guy. And I was just like, you know what? You know what? You're going to make it in life, and I'm going to cry. <laughs> and then try comedy. <laughs> I mean, the, the hour is kind of interesting, too, in the context of our, our media landscape is, I think, moving away. You know, people like to binge long-form things, but a lot of it's just like the clip that can go viral. Whereas you went for the more traditional model of, no, no, an hour of your attention is worth it. <laughs> yeah. Was that a deliberation at all? Or is it just that, you know, we all kind of grew up on comedy hours? <laughs> totally. Well, uh, full transparency, uh, it was to get a portfolio, 
Um, that was a big goal because I was just like, all right, I got a master's in health policy and I need to convince people that I can do comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there is a pragmatic lens to that. But also, I just really, really, really love the art of public discourse. You know, um, back in the day, I was pretty into Facebook statuses and I got a lot of likes, <laughs> not to brag, just, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I think ideas that you hear live can really resonate within you. And so for me, it was community centered as far as, yes, it'd be great to make it, da 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 da. But most importantly, I want people to have ideas that are imparted, you know? And I think that will be easier to achieve in person with a packed house. Because, you know, if you go viral, that's cool. But it's based off algorithms. There isn't as much autonomy with who I'm speaking to. And, you know, when's the last time you heard someone go viral twice? You know, look, I'm not I'm not on TikTok, so <laughs> I'm going to sound old if I try to get into that. <laughs> you tell me. I'm not on TikTok either. That was, that was rhetorical for both of us, I suppose. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Griffin about his new comedy special, 27 Club, which was filmed in Omaha and is now available on YouTube. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play on an upcoming show. I don't know. It's, it's a weird landscape of like trying to talk to people, trying to make sure that they'll listen, trying to make sure that it matters. And that's a, that's a lot of pressure to put on a comedy show mm. ultimately where, you know, in the moment you want to make sure you get laughs, right? Mm, mm-hmm. That's kind of your guiding force. Because if, if you're doing live comedy and you get no reaction from the <laughs> audience, that's going to be what you're thinking about. Not like, is the commentary working? Are their hearts changed? <laughs> and it's a lot to juggle. For sure. I mean, is that something you want to continue to develop and doing more comedy, more acts, more hours? Oh, absolutely. By the way, the next comedy special will be called Holy Trinity, September 15th at Culture House. Oh, so you've already got it. Yeah. Is it? Do you know what it is? Like, is it uh, formed yet? <sighs> All the deep dive questions. Yes. <laughs> it's just... Uh... You're workshopping it with your mom? <laughs> Speaking with your chest. <laughs> That's not what she sounds like. Well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so there are three big ideas behind it. Um, just three approaches to, in my opinion, solidifying democracy through our votes with non-sexy ideas that we don't hear all the time. Do you sure you want to put non-sexy in your pitch? <laughs> Usually you want sexy in the pitch. Nah, man. This ain't sexy. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay with three pretty good looking <laughs> ideas <laughs> and those ideas are establishing establishing term limits for our supreme court justices dc statehood and also getting rid of the filibuster and people in the know are aware of these ideas but for me the biggest challenge for this next special is to talk about these ideas without it being political it being experience-based so that individuals that are not into politics, da-da-da-da-da, the layperson, they can emotively feel an investment on how those goals could help us. How does it look to be 
it, it is inherently political, but you're saying not using the language of politics and the kind of uh, I don't know the the I don't know if it's jargon exactly, but sort of like the possible solutions are going to have this kind of like usual political lanes. Is that sort of how you figure out it's personal but not too political? Yeah, because you know at the end of the day, it's about problem solving. And I know I've said this a lot, but when I think of something that's political, I think of standardized language that is meant to create barriers for participation. And so how can we feel and think while still talking about systems? So are you at the point now, like, are are you going around and trying any bits from this one yet? Or <laughs> can people see them, see the work in progress? No, but you will on September 15th in 2023. <laughs> is this going to be like a yearly thing for you? An hour every year? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good standard to hold. I mean, there's some comics do that. Some comics find the greatest hits and stick with that. And, you know, whatever. Whatever works for you, right? Right. And and for me, it goes all about my goal. You know, have fun, laugh, but also the landscape of our nation is changing. And so for me... I think that the approach is shit as well. You have a line um, in your special about basically it's something along the lines of some things should be a journal, not a post. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a, a comedy special is kind of both. <laughs> For sure. Do you journal on the side as well? Yo, I be journaling like yeah. literally three times a day. Um, for me personally, uh, I enjoy being public and speaking publicly, but I don't think it's the best idea to speak publicly without processing it as a person. Art comes from the person, but I still want to make sure that the person is healthy. So you, how, how, what's the process like for journaling three times a day? Like you wake up <laughs> and you bring out the pen or how's it? Yeah. Work? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm a high functioning anxiety person. Okay. <laughs> so it's mostly just like, Michael, it's okay. You think it's just what your dad just left? You're good. It's all right. You're not alone. Da, 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 da. Okay, let's go to work. And that's it's like soothing for you. To yeah. Get that all out. Yeah. Definitely. So is your journal just a bunch of anxious thoughts then? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's why I I'm not nervous if anyone ever picks it up. Good luck deciphering. <laughs> <laughs> when did that start for you? Uh, grad school, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And so you what like wake up, lunch, get home from work, or before you go to bed? What's yeah? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So how, how long is like the average journal entry? Two pages. Okay. See, I, I don't know if I uh, – I'm like my, – my brain – I'm a fairly anxious person too. When I wake up, usually I'm thinking about something and I can't get back to sleep because something's bothering me. Uh, but I don't know if I'm like cogent enough to really write about it yet. I mm. think you know, like to, to turn it into written words is very different <laughs> than just the string For of consciousness. Sure. For sure. It really helps with comedy. Honestly, like processing anxiety so you can still speak in a cohesive fashion. Yeah. Uh -huh. So is that something you had to like, would you say that there's a line from whatever uh, it, the skill that's triggered in your brain to be able to sort of turn thoughts, feelings, anxieties into words? Does that help you with your comedy directly? Oh, absolutely. OK. And also comedy helps me as a person. You know, um, I think we can gain a lot of skills from what we learn with art. For instance, there have been times where. You know, when I'm on the stage, I can turn into Michael, who doesn't care about what anyone thinks. But then I'm off stage. I'm squishy and need my mom to hug me. You know, very Pisces Aries, if you will. 
But uh, on stage even, it seems like you got both of those, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And so sometimes being on stage and making a joke that is rooted in truth, I've had to hold myself accountable in my normal life where I'm like, well, I can joke about that and feel confident. So why don't I try to have that right here with this interpersonal relationship in my life? So are you at the point now where you're uh, – you're <laughs> The the stage fright, has it gone away after having done a whole hour where it's sort of like – I know you said two minutes in you sort of got over it. Is it still scary to have to go and try again or is it like, nah, I conquered it. I did an hour. <laughs> I'm at the point where I don't care if people laugh or not. Yeah. Is that good for a comedian or do you like, – should you? <laughs> should you want them to laugh? Or is it just confidence and that's all we really <laughs> should <laughs> What I meant was I'm at the point where I will I'm okay if people don't laugh. Okay. You know, I still enjoy the process. Um because I think that's the biggest thing with comedy. Just rejection. It's a very tangible right. way to tell if people like or dislike what you've said. Um and I've just worked to really transform anxiety into excitement. That's yeah. that yeah, I think I, I try to do that too, but sometimes it just becomes kind of this amplified anxiety that's an hour of the radio of me being anxious. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's good because you, sure. when you're on here and you, you seem uh you don't seem especially anxious as I talk to you now, which is helpful because it doesn't make me try to mm-hmm. lock into that energy. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'm like a duck, but you don't see the legs. So. <laughs> So this uh, this special, I wonder, do you think that there's is there like a, a culture that can be uh, can that can emerge from the Omaha comedy scene where people doing specials becomes actually a norm? Because I imagine it was sort of difficult for you to find even the technical ability to to, to produce the thing. It's not like mm. it's not like a lot of people are making specials. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but I I basically have no connection to the Omaha comedy scene. <laughs> Like, I don't know if people are into that or not. No, um, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, they might be into it, but they're not doing it. <laughs> um, for me personally, uh, I just am really community focused. Like, I love being in a space where people aren't expecting to see comedy, you know, where I'm after a rapper or a dancer. And as far as assembling a production crew, I worked at Film Streams right after school. Shout out Film Streams. And uh, I just, it was really through personal relationships with incredible people that have great skills. Um, And I'm hoping there will be a paradigm shift, you know, because I think that the more people are publicly vulnerable, the safer the nation will be. And your special is on YouTube because then it's easier for people to share, to find, to have that sort of impact? Yeah. And also, I don't know anything about pitching specials. (laughs) Some people, they also don't know, but they're like, well, my thing's going to be $50 because I put a lot of work into this. And you're like, but people don't – they, they don't, <laughs> right. you don't have a million people who follow you. You know, they might not, might not be – you know, like you kind of need people to get into it, right? right? It needs to be sort of a grassroots thing. Right, exactly. Uh, so I'm really just trying to share it um, and really use what I've learned with comedy to reduce harm. You know, like um, there's this really great nonprofit called Rise Academy – about uh, re-entering for formerly incarcerated folks. I've been doing a few sessions there on using forms of comedic expression for interpersonal healing. Um, And we're actually going to be doing a community project together. And so I'm really into mixing the advocacy comedy intersections. 
just because, you know, if more people feel comfortable speaking through trauma while processing, like I just said, I really think the world will be a better place. And and my target populations with my career are people that have the most disparities, are people living in the margins. Um, it'd be great to be Trevor Noah. I'm afraid it's great to it will be great, but I don't care if we still have people dying in a system when it's preventable. That's my driving motivation. So before I let you go, um, I don't know if you're at the point where you're willing to share anything about the new special in terms of specific jokes. But yeah. how are you going to make the filibuster funny? Because <laughs> I think the only person who's really done it is probably that Patton Oswalt thing. That's the mm. only thing most people know about the filibuster. He talked about Star Wars for a long time. <laughs> yeah, on Parks and Rec. Yeah. Yeah, how will I make the filibuster funny? Um, that's why the special is in September and not July. <laughs> you're working on it. <laughs> That's a tease. <laughs> I'll try not to talk too long. Because eh? the public radio people, they probably know what the filibuster is. So if you're not sure how it's going to be funny and you want to find out, you got something to do in <laughs> exactly. September. All right. Exactly. Any, anything else you want to plug before I let you go here? Totally. Hey, Amber, Lacey, you know, your boys out here, man. If you hear this and you think I sound cool, you know, I'll have my mom call y'all. <laughs> no, uh, that's it. Oh, just okay. No, well, the, the special. Give us one more time. Where, where should people go to find your special? Yeah, Club? yeah. So it's on YouTube, Twenty Seven Club, Michael Griffin, full hour special. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS ninety one five FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find a backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Noblock.